Hello, listeners, and welcome back to Recovery Talk, a podcast from the Peer Recovery Center of Excellence. I'm your host, Shannon Roberts. Each month, we will be talking with an expert in the field, discussing substance use disorders, resources to assist individuals with an SUD and or their families, and best practices for the delivery of peer recovery support services. This week, we are throwing it back to a previous episode. In September of last year, Tom Hill spoke with us about his recovery journey and how it intertwines with the history and ongoing recovery movement. We hope you enjoy giving Tom's story another listen, and we also invite you to revisit any of our other previous episodes. We'll be back next month with a brand new conversation. Until next time, listeners, and without further ado, let's get talking. Well, Tom, thank you so much for doing this. Um, You know, for the two of us, our paths really only crossed very briefly um, with regard to the Peer Recovery Center Center of Excellence. um, By a matter of hours or days, right? Yeah. Seriously, I think I can count on one hand. (laughs) Um, For our listeners who may not know your name, do you want to go ahead and introduce yourself and what you're up to now? Yeah, so my name is uh, Tom Hill. I am... um, a gay man in long-term recovery from addiction, and I am currently uh, serving as senior policy advisor uh, for the Office of Drug Control Policy, ONDCP. Um, It's an office of the White House, and I'm serving in a uh, political appointee capacity. Yes, on to bigger and better things. So, Tom, talk to me a little bit about why why this work is important to you. Uh, so, first of all, Shannon, thank you so much for asking me to do this interview. It's always um, so nice to um, be included in uh, a larger discussion around recovery and the recovery movement and recovery month and, and all the things that those uh, imply. Um, I, you know, it's... I feel like I, this, was, this wasn't the work that I thought I was supposed to be doing. Uh, it's a work that I feel like I've been called to do, um, and I have not always <laughs> done that willingly, especially <laughs> in the beginning years, because I just didn't understand uh, so much of what I was being asked to do um, or by whom. Uh, so uh, I've just sort of gotten used to that over the years. And um, so, you know, so much of my um, early story is, you know, I, I, when I say long-term recovery, for me, that means that I haven't used alcohol or drugs for over 29 years. And, and even before that, before that 29-year mark, um, mm-hmm. I was feeling really irritable and discontent and sp- basically spinning my wheels and not getting anywhere um, and just digging into a hole deeper and deeper. So, you know, I, 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 I'm a family member of uh, a person um, with addiction. My mom uh, uh, was uh, a heavy drinker and, um, and had a lot of issues um, mm-hmm. that I sort of inherited along the way. But I, uh, so I, I, I you know, I, I did some work uh, as a family member. Uh, I went to therapy. I was trying to figure out sort of what was wrong with me and um, the, much, much later, I learned about 
um, adverse childhood experiences, uh, ACEs. And mm-hmm. like once I, I learned more and more about that, it was like I had this framework that, that allowed me to start answering the questions that, that had been floating around. Because even in early recovery, I was starting to put pieces of my life together, but I still couldn't put all the puzzle pieces together in a way that made sense for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, and a lot of that was causation stuff. So when I had this sort of framework of trauma and adverse childhood experiences, which I have a fairly high score on that, and um, it, it's, it, it, things started to make much more sense mm-hmm. in terms of like uh, my shame, my, mm-hmm. my uh, hesitancy to ask for help, like all of these things that they kept me sort of sputtering for a long, long time. So sure. uh, in early recovery, I started putting these things together around my sexuality, around my family of origin. Um, and, um, you know, I started practicing uh, a recovery program that emphasized honesty and truthfulness. And so I start, you know, I started really looking deeply inside and sort of deciding who and what I was and and that I did not want to ever have to be apologetic or make excuses for that again. So yeah, there were a lot of turning points in early recovery where I, um, I started seeing more clearly. And I also, um, I think just became much more stronger. So, so I'm telling you all this now because, um, there, because I understand where other people get stuck. Mm. And I understand how they get stuck. And I understand that they get stuck in families and in a society that does not help them get unstuck. And so um, I have a lot of compassion for that. And I, I have a lot of compassion for people who haven't found their voice or don't feel like they deserve their voice, who are embedded in shame, um, who like who, you know, at the end of the day, feel really bad about themselves before they go to sleep. And no one on earth should ever have to do that. And so, to you know, I really look at recovery as a liberation um, mm-hmm. of, of the things that sort of hold us back from bringing our true and authentic selves. And like anything that will move more people toward that, I, am, I will wholeheartedly mm-hmm. be behind. <laughs> I love that. Yeah, a lot of. A lot of what I keep coming to in my discussions with people in recovery is, wow, these concepts of recovery are so vital to what I think makes up humanity. And just like you said, that nobody deserves to feel stuck in shame, whether that has to do with a substance use challenge, addiction, whatever it is, everyone should have that that liberation to be their authentic selves. Well, you know, I, you know, I, a lot of times, like, I think people, society still sort of assigns blame and shame to addiction and substance use disorder, you know, as we move through a lot of that, but a lot of that residue is still there. It's like, Mm -hmm. you know, well, I didn't put a needle in your arm. Like you chose to do that. And, you know, when I learned about trauma and I learned about ACEs, I learned that like those experiences actually change the structure of your brain the same way that substances do. Mm-hmm. And so there's a direct correlation between using substances in a way that sort of fills those gaps 
at least mm-hmm. initially, that were, were that were created and caused by something else. So, mm-hmm. so you know, like when you think of it that way, like, like, did I have a choice to become addicted? I don't think so. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, and certainly, and and we and recovery, I've learned to take responsibility for a whole range of things, and including the things I did, you know, when I was using. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's, um, but but. It's not responsibility about that. It's right. not, you know, like I don't have to apologize to anybody for having a brain disorder or a brain disease that was created by two different things and maybe several more things mm-hmm. that, that, that just, you know, that just happened to me physi- physiologically as well as psychologically. So it's and as well as spiritually. So it's, um, you know, putting all that together in recovery can be daunting, but it can also be really, really exciting. And and the early years of my recovery were so exciting because I was engaging in the world in a way that fear had held me back from doing, from uh, using substances had held me back from doing, and from just being um, uh, disengaged from the world. Um, and and very very insular kept me from doing so. To be able to sort of re-engage with the world in a whole new way was um, was something that I've never I haven't gotten over since. I was excited then, and it's still what fuels me now because I remember what it was like uh, to not be able to do that and to really like be so frustrated because I wanted to but there was a wall between me and you and me and everybody else. Mm-hmm. And I did not know how to penetrate that wall. What a powerful sentiment. And I mean, that was only a few minutes, but yeah, just so huge. Thank you for sharing that. Um, so part of the reason we're doing this, uh, I'm calling it my bonus episode or my special episode. You're a very special guest, Tom. Um, is to talk about and to celebrate Recovery Month. So can you talk to me a little bit about what Recovery Month is and why it's so important to everyone? You know, um, when I was in early recovery and fully coming out as a gay man, Mm-hmm. Um, I, uh, you know, we always talked about, you know, June is pride month and we always talked about it as like the queer Christmas, you know, <laughs> and, um, <laughs> I like that. I sort, of, I, sort, I sort of think about recovery months the same, the same way. It's like, you know, it's like every day and every month should be about recovery. Uh, mm-hmm. but there's, you know, there, there is this focus that happens every September, and, you know, it's like, I think it's it's important to remember that, you know, like when when I was 20, 20, 22 years ago, when I was sort of part of organizing this this beginning of it was really a second or third phase of a, of a recovery movement because there had been some, you know, some things that had happened in decades before. But in the late mm-hmm. 90s and early 2000s, sort of building this new awareness about recovery. And, you know, initially, like when I was a part of this thing called the Recovery Community Support Program that was a a SAMHSA-granted program in 1998 with 19 community organizations. It was through the Center for Substance Abuse Treatment. And we were sort of charged with building um, a, a recovery mobilizing effort in our communities. 
Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, I, I, the, the original intention for that, which did not come from any of the grantees, was that we would organize people in recovery to speak out against, uh, for, uh, uh, speak out for treatment, you know, mm-hmm. to advocate for treatment. And when we started organizing people, they either hadn't gone to treatment or they had been in treatment for a very short time. But they, they said, well, we don't want to advocate for treatment. We want to advocate for recovery. So I think even recovery month, I think it started out with a really strong treatment emphasis. And, you know, it's like I, I advocate for treatment. I advocate for harm reduction. I advocate for, for prevention, for recovery. Mm-hmm. Through my career, I've just learned to encompass all of those things. And I've been engaged with all of those things. But the recovery focus is, is really important to hold on to because it's not treatment. And that, that uh, you know, that certainly intersects with treatment. But recovery mm-hmm. is, for it, it, it really is long term. It's, it's for a lifetime. And so, you know, we have people that are, 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 are um, defining recovery for themselves, people, uh, you know, that are putting together abstinence time. There's people that, that there's long term and short term recovery. But it's it's you know this is uh, become sort of a cliche, but it's not uh, uh, an event; it's a process, mm-hmm. you know, and then it, it, it unfolds over a person's lifetime. And that, um, I think you know, like sitting here now in 2021, I am sort of amazed at the amount of people in the federal government and state governments um, and and treatment centers that talk about recovery in a very different way than they did five years ago or 10 years ago, or certainly 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. And, and, and the, the, they, they're, they're starting to be a, a much stronger awareness about the value of recovery, the value of lived experience, the value of inviting us to the table, not because they think they have to, but because we really do add to the conversation. And that my lived experience of recovery and addiction it, it, it is, you know, I always say uh, lived experience is equals expertise because it, it, it's it, we bring much more than sometimes we even realize to the equation of how people recover, uh, what it looks like, how it evolves and and all the different facets of it. That if you don't if you're not close to it, you just don't know. Right. So I, I, I don't know that I even answered your question, but I hope I came close. Recovery month is really important. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's good. Uh, all good things. And I mean, that's so much, uh, so much of the reason I wanted to talk to you today about this was you do, you are steeped in that history of, you know, how our culture, you know, both from executive branches down to Joe Schmo or Josephine Schmo on the sidewalk. <laughs> um, just this vantage point of how we engage with, talk with re- the idea of recovery and and the stigma around it, and you know breaking down those barriers. And you know the theme this month is recovery is for everyone. And I, I do, as an ally, I do think that branches out to people who don't personally have a substance use challenge or recovering from it. And not to say that that peer voice is not vital or that it's in any way invalid, but just like you said, I think there's so much power in the way we're talking about it now. 
Well, you know, there's a couple of things. So first is it is about the recovery narrative, which is really the recovery narratives. It's really a there's a, a plurality to it because mm-hmm. all all the stories are different. But but you know, there there are threads to all those stories. I talked about being stuck and becoming unstuck. Um, like that's like that that that's a bridge to life, and mm-hmm. and I think you know that's a, such a powerful. Uh, metaphor and, and such a powerful idea that that you that that you don't have to stay stuck. Yeah, and that you know, and that you know, hopefully you have access to resources that help you get unstuck. Now, you know, we also are in an age where we have we have a much different understanding of health inequities and social determinants of health and all mm-hmm. those things that hold people back. Also, mm-hmm. so it's you know, a lot of it has to do with with birthright, like, like, you know, like, like your privilege, what your access to. So, you know, I'm a white man. I, uh, I, from a a working class background, but like, you know, not in poverty. Um, Mm -hmm. And so, you know, so there was, you know, there was certain access to privilege that I have had that other people don't. And, and so I think, you know, we're also always trying to level the playing field in terms of, of uh, uh, even looking at like certain recovery systems that we've developed that were developed basically for white middle-class men. Uh, And so, you know, so how do you start restructuring some of those things that are more inclusive to that recovery is for everyone and that Mm -hmm. everyone can get recovery if, you know, if, and they currently can't if they're closed out of those systems or closed out of those resources. So I think, you know, that's always a really important thing. And I think we've not always had a very sophisticated understanding of that in the recovery movement. Uh, I've been involved in the LGBT movement. I've been involved in the HIV AIDS movement where there was a much greater understanding about race and power and privilege and all those things. And I think we're just starting to become more aware of that in the recovery community um, uh, and recovery movement. But it's um, and so, you know, sort of lagging behind. But I think um, it's I have hope. I have hope that, that we will be able to get to the next level with that, mm-hmm. because uh, when we start looking at um, uh, not only health inequities, but also inequities in terms of uh, black and indigenous people being incarcerated at greater rates, like all of those things I think we have to look at in a very different way. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, we're sort of getting there, but have a, a, a long way to go. I don't know how I got off on that trajectory, but I think it's an important one. Oh, absolutely. And yeah, I, I think you summarized it well. There's There's certainly a lot of work to be done, but hope that it can be. And, and like you mentioned with the HIV community and the LGBT community, they have done a lot of work. And so we have these models that, you know, we can, we can look to and yeah, take from. Absolutely. And, and I, you know, it's, I, I feel like that's been part of my role is to bridge to those other movements uh, mm-hmm. and uh, help people learn, learn from them. The feminist movement, you know, lots, lots of things in terms of, of not only successes, but failures in terms of, right. of, of coming up short. The other thing I wanted to say was, you know, I think that one thing we have to remember is that, every, that everything we've gotten in the recovery movement, we've gotten because we pushed it. 
Mm. Uh, that like it, it didn't like people didn't just sort of decide that it was like oh it's great to have lived experience now <laughs> like we had, we had to sort of like push those those instances over and over again mm-hmm. so like when we talk about um, when we talk about inclusion it's you know it's like one thing I learned in those other movements I was in was to you know like how to like strategically make room for everybody. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that that's, that that's a really important thing, but it's also, you know, that whole idea of, of speaking truth to power is an important thing. And, and it's important to learn those skills that, um, that, you know, that, that all the gains that have been made have been made because, you know, there were certain people in the recovery movement that pushed the envelope on that and tried to move the dial. And so, you know, when we talk about, um, you know, valuing lived experience and um, I'm pausing because I'm thinking about, you know, the early days of doing peer services. And I, and so, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, we now have a a peer, uh, uh, a center of excellence, which is like, pretty amazing that was also fought for by the recovery community i might add uh like for for many many years uh and so uh so it was it was great to see that happen it was great to be a part of the sort of the germination of that but you know in the early days when we were putting forth peer services like people didn't really understand what they were people thought they were 12-step sponsors and things like mm-hmm. that we had to do a lot of explaining and a lot of delineating and no it's not this and it's not that but it's this and uh, and um and there wasn't a whole lot of belief that peer services were a valuable thing and so yeah. you know it was like it's sort of staying with the course and talking about, you know, services that were based on people's strengths and not their deficits. Services that were based on people having a choice and a menu of choices. I always said, you know, like uh, if you're a vegetarian and you're offered the choice of a hamburger and a hot dog, that's not really a very good <laughs> set of choices, you know? And so like coming up with a menu of services that actually fit people's needs as well as their strengths and then letting them choose. And that was, you know, that's still in some camps, a radical idea that, you know, it's, it's better. Like I know better and I'm going to tell you what to do instead of like, I'm going to help you make an informed choice and I'm going to navigate you and, and, and help you fig- sort of figure that out. Mm-hmm. And, and then we'll figure out a plan around that. And so, you know, the other system was very patriarchal in terms of like, you know, father knows best. So, mm-hmm. uh, you know, like these were, I, they didn't seem like radical things at the time, but I think it has changed a lot of the ways that uh, what we now call recovery-oriented systems of care have actually actualized. Um, mm-hmm. Again, a long way to go, but they're, but they're actually, you know, there's, there's demonstrations of that all across the country where people are starting to understand that, you know, recovery principles and values actually are great things <laughs> you know like what the the, the 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 things that we learn in recovery and that we start to to value and build principles around um like actually is is not a bad way to live and not a bad way to run an organization and not a way to conduct services so i i just say all that because like none of that comes by itself 
And it also is evolutionary. And you have to sort of be in those uncomfortable moments in the beginning, which are un uncomfortable years, actually, mm -hmm. uh, until like little by little things uh, start to take hold. And having done this particular piece of work for 22 years, I, I, I can see, you know, like uh, I can see a, a single moment happen and trace it back to 2006 or 2012 or 2002 uh, and, and, and sort of, you know, it, it's, it's those moments are really reassuring because I can see the connections in that moment that I don't see day to day. And, mm -hmm. you know, like doing this work, you can, you can get sort of lost. And, you know, it's like, it can be frustrating and you can feel like you haven't made much gain or momentum. And then, you know, if, uh, and then you realize, wow, this is pretty amazing that, you know, like so-and-so is actually funding this. Um, and, and it was like the overnight success that took 15 years to build. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, Tom, can, do you mind going back a little bit and talking to us a little bit about the history and it's, you know, sometimes it's hard to pinpoint, not all things have a very definite start, but maybe talk to us a little bit about the origins. Well, I talked about the, the you know, the RCSP and that was in 1998. And then a really important thing, and it's important right now in this moment that you and I are talking because it's in 2021, it was in 2001. So it's 20 years ago, it was mm -hmm. the, uh, the recovery summit in St. Paul. So there's going to be a, you know, a 20th uh, anniversary of that in early October. Uh, and that, you know, that was, um, was a very small gathering, I would say under 200 people. All of the recovery community service programs, support programs were, um, um, we were allowed to bring three people from each of our programs and then, and then other people were invited. And we basically talked about, you know, like what a recovery movement would look like over talking about over two, three days. And that's where Faces and Voices of Recovery was born was mm -hmm. during that time. Well, that was a really, really important thing. And then, you know, uh, that grant program shifted from advocacy to peer services in 2001 or two, I think 2002. Um, so that that was a huge shift and people didn't like it. And I had gone from being a project director for the, um, the LGBT grant. It was from the LGBT Center in, uh, in New York City. And I moved down to D.C. to uh, work for um, what was then HSR, Health Systems Research, and then became Alterum that uh, did the technical assistance for that grant program. And so. Like um, I got to work with with grantees all over the country, uh, which was just my greatest pleasure because I got to go in for several days. And I, that's when you actually got to do TA on site and in person <laughs> and uh, and really work with folks and help them put their programs together. And then when we shifted to peer services, uh, we basically we looked at mental health. We looked at HIV AIDS. We looked at, you know, other sort of peer programs. But, and we looked at 12 step uh, because that was uh, a peer to peer kind of thing. Mm -hmm. and, and so we looked at like what we could pull from that, but also what we needed to have a firewall uh, between peer services and, and 12 steps. And, um, and basically just, it's going to sound trivial if I say made it up, 
But, you know, we, we established a framework and, and spent a lot, lot of time doing that and then had the grantees in their various communities build their programs based on the framework, but informed by their community strengths and needs. Uh, and that was, that, was how, that was the bubbling up of, of all of that. Um, uh, SAMHSA created it uh, and sort of, you know, seeded that. And it was, uh, it, you know, over time, it just exploded. Mm-hmm. Um, so, um, we always complained that there wasn't enough money and, uh, and there, you know, there weren't enough grants, um, that that's expanded over time and mm-hmm. you know, to the point where we have a center of excellence now. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I think, you know, it's just, um, the value of those grants was that we saw what could be established in each of our communities. And when mm-hmm. and we also had a learning community. So when we came together uh, at meetings two or three times a year, we would share experiences with one another and then bring, bring things back. Recovery Community Centers grew out of that. So CCAR had started, they were a grantee and they'd started <coughs> the first, not the first Recovery Community Center because there had been some in Vermont, but we basically had a meeting where, um, it, it was in El Paso, Texas, at one of the grantees. They hosted it, and we basically spent three days talking about building recovery community centers. And people went back, and most of the grantees started building recovery community centers. And now they're all across the country, mm-hmm. you know. And our, our our idea was that they, you know, they should be like a senior center, like like every community has a senior center and is totally proud of that. And we thought, why don't like we have recovery community centers in every community across the country. We're not there yet, but we're, but uh, it's building uh, over time. And mm-hmm. I guess, you know, then I started learning so much about um, recovery housing and I connected with um, Oxford House and later with, with National Alliance of Recovery Residences, the folks there uh, mm-hmm. in 2010, 2011 learned about collegiate recovery programs, learned about recovery high schools, and started connecting with those folks. <coughs> it was such a gift to be able to have connection to those resources in those communities. And, and I think we still are not really quite there of pulling all that together, but way more than we were uh, even five years ago. So, you know, little by little, you know, our idea was always that there would be these recovery ecologies that in, in any community, you'd have a collegiate program or several recovery high schools, you'd have recovery housing, you'd have recovery community center, you'd have peer services, uh, and then they would all be interconnected. Mm-hmm. Um, and that takes, you know, building those networks takes some doing. But um, again, I think just, just the awareness of who else is in your community doing the same work. Because uh, prior to that, people would be working in different <clears throat> sectors of the community and not even know of the other's existence. So right. little by little, we're starting to develop some more connective tissue, I think. Yeah. I, I, another really, you know, I think the biggest event was um, first the uh, distribution of the anonymous people. Mm. And I don't know if you've seen that, Shannon, but. Uh, you know, it's an amazing documentary. It was put together by Greg Williams. Uh, and then, you know, he and other people organized uh, viewings across the country. And then there would be like a panel discussion afterwards. 
And so this, you know, it, that was just a, a, all of a sudden things started to explode. And I think that was like 2013 when that was released. And and young people who who initially had not been part of the movement started like figuring out that they wanted to be part of this. And they didn't have any of the baggage about anonymity that people in my generation did. Mm. <clears throat> They were sort of brought up on social media. So it was like, you know, like an open book was not alien to them at all. So mm-hmm. so that happened. And then the March on Washington wasn't the March on Washington. What was it called? <laughs> uh, Facing Addiction uh, at the National Monument. Um, it, it was equivalent to a March on Washington. But, uh, but that happened in 2015. And those events, that was also largely organized by Greg Williams. Those things just really sort of exploded things. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were like those moments in history that that it's catalyzed. So you know, it's um, I've given you a very spotty and very brief uh, left a left a lot of holes in it, but um, it's been uh, you know I think a really valuable experience to have been a part of it. I'm so honored to have been part of any of it, uh, mm-hmm. even just to be able to witness it happening. But right. it's um, you know it's. It's changed my life. The movement changed my life in the same way recovery changed my life. And, and I think the fact that more people are standing up uh, out of the shadows and saying that they're a person in long-term recovery and, and have lived experience and offering to be part of this, um, this agentry of change is a, an amazing thing because it allows other people to do it. It emboldens other people to do it. And it also you know, less people know that um, it, it, that whatever recovery means to them, like any possible cha- positive change they can make, we're willing to help them. Right. You know, that's mm-hmm. it's, it's good stuff. It's it's the best stuff, in my opinion. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, you kind of already talked about this, but one of the things I wanted to ask was where where do you see this recovery movement? Where do you see recover? And you can talk to Recovery Month specifically if you want, if it fits in. Um, but where do well, you see us going? I mean, I think that there's a lot of questions to be answered by the people in the movement and people in the recovery community. It's like you know, like how. How are we going to build intersections with treatment that really work, that are authentic, but keep the integrity of, of recovery, that we don't get subsumed by treatment? Um, that and how do we build? How do we uh, work with other uh, disciplines and at the same time keep our own sort of work in our communities? Um, I think uh, you know a new question is how we intersect with harm reduction. Uh, and harm reduction, you know, is now it's a federal priority. It's it's uh, it's something that has attention that's never had before, and uh, it it's, it creates excitement and maybe some anxiety in the recovery community and other communities. So it's sure. you know because it blows open the definition or the definitions that we've been operating under, which I always think is a great thing because in order to change and evolve. We always have to sort of blow it open, uh, mm-hmm. you know, and then and deconstruct and reconstruct it and all those things in order to keep vital and not and not remain stagnant. And again, that those are lessons from my own recovery. Mm-hmm. So I think that, you know, like that's a big thing. 
I think the, the idea of, of inclusion and, uh, and racial equity is, is a big, big challenge. So I think, I think there's, there's plenty of things for us to deal with in terms of <clears throat> building the kind of movement that, that really does include all voices and all experiences. At the same time, putting some parameters and guardrails on that, because it, you know, it's like, yeah, recovery is for everyone, but it's, it's got to start with people in recovery. Right. You know, but but um, but the way recovery and is defined or, or could be defined or will be defined is going to be evolving and changing. Mm-hmm. And, you know, even the way that that language, you know, there's an awareness of language right now that that, that again didn't exist five years ago. And, and I see it in the federal government. I see it in, in a lot of areas where people are really cautious about using non-stigmatizing language mm-hmm. and you know that that even that goes all the way over to to pronouns uh, in the lgbt plus community that's mm-hmm. taught us that gender is fluid and that um and that we have to, and their language has to be fluid to to, uh, to, to correspond with that mm-hmm. and so and i always think that you know that that correlation between language and ideology and thinking is so interconnected I don't know which leads which, but I know that, it, that as our language changes, our thinking changes, and as our thinking changes, our language changes, mm-hmm. evolutionary again. So mm-hmm. I think, you know, I, those things, uh, harm uh, prevention, like how, how do we intersect with prevention? No one's ever quite figured that out. But, but if we're talking about a continuum of care, like all those, the way I talked about those puzzle pieces fitting together in my life, we have mm-hmm. to sort of figure out how they fit together in a way that that we build this continuum of care that, and this is really a recovery-oriented system of care, that anybody comes in at any single point or portal and gets taken care of, mm. or, you know, uh, whatever that means. You know, like I've learned like learned in, in, in the harm reduction movement so much around the way people are engaged, <clears throat> and this correlates to recovery as well. The way they're engaged with 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 uh, without stigma, without judgment, uh, without moralizing questions, just like c- come in the door and and like have a cup of coffee and have a sandwich and 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 what do you need? Right. You know. Yeah. And then in the course of that, you can move folks along. Uh, to start making maybe a different set of decisions for themselves mm-hmm. or maybe decisions that they didn't think were even possible for themselves. So like I learned that in recovery and I've learned that in, in the harm reduction space that, uh, that the way people are treated is, is really key. And our healthcare system and our treatment system has not always treated people the way that people deserve to be treated. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and, I, and I'm, I'm not saying that, you know, as, uh, as a thing against that, I just think those systems were sort of built that way at a different time mm-hmm. <laughs> that, but, you know, the value of human life and human experience, no matter what it looks like to you, <laughs> it's still an authentic experience right. and we <laughs> owe that person that much to be able to, you know, to, to, to be who they are at that moment. And also to make decisions, because I think, you know, the, the, it, it, in old treatment, 
there was an attitude that if you were having a substance use disorder, if you were experiencing addiction, you were not capable of making a decision for yourself. And that's, you know, that's infantilizing. It's disempowering. Uh, it's it's uh, patronizing and patriarchal. And, um, and that everybody has the wherewithal to make a decision for themselves. They may need help. They mm-hmm. may need navigation. They may need coaching. But, but it, you have to believe that that inherent truth is possible in everybody. And I do. And I think you do, too. I do. Yeah. It's, um, I've read this in several different books, um, and maybe future Shannon will find the titles and slip them in here, but, um, it's the concept of soft front, hard back where, you know, our, our bodies are, um, these, they're meant to be touched and to interact and to connect with people. But the first thing they feel and experience is that the, the human touch, that softness, that, you know, that soft front, but none of that would hold up without your skeleton. And, you know, you can kind of metaphorically think of that as your own boundaries and your own structure. Um, but it doesn't work unless you have the soft first. And I, I think to me, that's the same concept of meeting people where they're at. It's that just handing them a cup I of love- coffee. <laughs> I love that soft front hard back thing. I, I, I didn't know that. I'm, I'm, I'm going I'm to use that one. And, and, so, you know, as a social worker, I learned about meet people where they are. Mm-hmm. And then the harm reduction has taught me meet people where they are, but don't leave them there. And mm-hmm. I thought that's the piece that was always missing. You know, like, <laughs> don't leave it. Like, whatever that means, mm-hmm. don't leave people there. Mm-hmm. And, you know, like, like it, your responsibility is like to help them move along, even if it's a centimeter. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it's like, you know, uh, the, the slogan, any pos- positive change uh, it, is a ch- it, 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 and uh, any positive change over time will build and snowball. It will. Mm-hmm. So if you connect people who have been mistreated by the healthcare system, if you connect them to to healthcare that they've never had before, um, if you, you know, uh, give them the opportunity to make a decision toward uh, low threshold or low barrier initiation to treatment, to, to medication, those kinds of things. But it's always it always comes down to their choice, you know. And I think that you know it's like if you try to coerce somebody into changing, it's not gonna. It, 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 it's never worked. Right. <laughs> yeah, I think that's true anecdotally and evidence based wise. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, so, so if we know that, you know, one I learned about the, the uh, definition of insanity was doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results. It's like that, that's a hard pattern to undo, right? I mean, I've learned that in recovery. It's like you, you can know it, you can be aware of it, but actually changing that pattern—that's what where the key is, right? But, mm-hmm. but we have to learn that as a movement, as a profession, as an industry, like all those things, the, the helping industry of, you know, there's some basic things that I think we got wrong. Yeah. And and it's and, and we just need to figure out a way to change them systemically so that people get the care and help that they need and deserve. Yeah.
You're absolutely yeah, and, right. And if, if we can do that, uh, I will uh, rest in peace very, very happily. <laughs> yeah, it's just like that. We just have to have a couple conversations and we'll. Be well, there. you know, it's <laughs> you know when you when you train advocates, you have to like you know it's like this. You're in this for the long haul. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it's incremental change over time, and it's mm-hmm. like you know you have to keep going toward the center. But you you know it's like um, you, you, you're not always going to hit your target every single time. Right. You get closer. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Tom, um, how, how can folks get connected to their recovery community and, you know, whether they're struggling with a substance use disorder or they just want to help, or they just listen to you talk and they get excited and they're, how do I plug in? Well, you know, there are, there's so many different ways you can do it. Um, you know, I think if you uh, if you go on the faces and voices of recovery.org website, there's a there's a list of recovery community organizations and recovery community centers across the country. See if one is near you. Um, there's also a list of 12 step and other mutual support groups that all have their own websites and you can connect through that and then find you know the local pieces there. Um, if you need housing, you know, you go to, um, um, there's, there's several national organizations. There's NAR I talked about earlier at Oxford House. Mm-hmm. Uh, they can help you connect you with recovery. <coughs> excuse me. You're good. Recovery housing in your community. If you're in college and need to connect with a, a collegiate recovery program, there's the Association of Recovery and Higher Education if your kid is in high school and in recovery and having a hard time um, sort of coping with being in a, in a high school where other peers are using, mm-hmm. um, there's recovery high schools. That's re- uh, association of recovery schools. There, you know, there's a lot of national organization and you can drill down from there to more local things. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, it's like, I'm so proud that we're actually able to say those things in 2021 because we, we couldn't always do that. So there's still a lot of holes that need to be filled. But I think in terms of if you start from the top and drill down to as far local as you can get, um, you can get uh, uh, resources. Also, there's a SAMHSA treatment locator if you need treatment. So there, there's there's uh, you know a number of different ways to get there. Uh-huh. Um, and and there is, you know, this movement is stirring everywhere. So if you want to be a part of it, I, you know, I think everyone would be more than happy to have uh, more foot soldiers, more nascent leaders, uh, more leaders from other movements, you know, any way we, we can sort of incorporate you in our in our large tent. Uh, we're more than happy to uh, to welcome you in. Yeah, I I love that. Um, just big open arms. That's what I that's how I feel about the recovery movement, the recovery community. Um, I'd also be remiss if I didn't plug the Center of Excellence's website peerrecoverynow.org. Uh, we have several resources, including a list of RCOs and uh, materials and way, other ways to get connected. Um, and I know if that's not built out completely yet, that will be. Like all the things I talked about will eventually mm-hmm. all be a part of that repository uh, right. at the Center of Excellence. That's the idea of, 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 of one of the ideas of why it's there. So I think, mm-hmm. you know, um, uh, that's a great plug to put in because again, we fought long and hard for that. <laughs> yeah, we did. 
Well, Tom, before I sign off and let you go here, is there anything else you'd want our listeners to hear? Uh, that's I'm always least prepared for that question. Um, you know, I just, you know, we are in a situation right now in our country where I think the latest count was 93,000, maybe it's higher now of overdose deaths in the past year. And so we just had National International Overdose Awareness Day, the day before recovery month. It's a good connection. And I think that, you know, so much of what I do and what ONDCP does and where the national the federal government is is focused on right now is really addressing how to bend that curve. And so we're pulling out all stops to do that. Um, and um, I think we have to, you know, it's like we've lost a lot of people and, and we're continuing to lose a lot of people. And, uh, and, and, and if that has had any silver lining, um, at all, and it's been exacerbated by COVID. Mm-hmm. That has had any sort of lining at all. It's that it's brought us to a, a new level of awareness. And, and that awareness has extended beyond the recovery community and the recovery movement. And it's extended to families who have lost children and loved ones. It has um, extended to policymakers and politicians elected officials and agency officials across the, the federal government, state governments, tribal governments, uh, and all the way down to the community level. And so there's not only, there's an awareness about the potential of recovery now that I don't think existed before. Stigma is still there, but it's not like it was before. I think we have some, we have some points of entry that we never had before. Mm-hmm. There's awareness that needs to be heightened and raised by us. Uh, we need to build our allies. And, and uh, we need to sort of take this moment, as tragic as it is, and really build something powerful on top of it. And, um, you know, I, I always reconnect to the HIV AIDS movement where people were dying and a lot of people were in community people were really, really angry about that. And I think that it's okay for us to be angry about this, but we have to channel and 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 mobilize our anger. And we have an opportunity to educate people in a different way about addiction in general, about recovery, uh, about a stigma, about discrimination, about all those things um, that that we haven't had their ear before or their eyes on us before. So this is the moment right now and we need to seize it. And so, um, I, you know, it's like, um, take heart in that, that, um, that this moment is, it is ours to push forward. Uh, and then we have a lot of folks watching this, but a lot of folks joining us in terms of uh, making this a reality that I don't think a lot of people thought was even possible um, not too long ago. So, um, that's all I got to say about that. Tom, thank you so much for opening up and um, just making yourself available for the community. And, you know, 
you've done so much for this community already and including this, you know, our discussion. So thank you. Well, you know, the community has given me a lot. And I also, you know, the, this is, uh, it's the adage of to whom much is given, much is required. So take that seriously. Well, we all appreciate it. I speak on behalf of all the people. <laughs> okay, Sharon. <laughs> Thank okay. you so much. Thank you. Thank you for connecting with us, listeners. Our goal in sharing stories and information is to provide hope and resources to the field of peer recovery. Please join us again next month on Recovery Talk. You can find our episodes on our website, peerrecoverynow.org. That's peerrecoverynow.org, or wherever you find your podcasts. The Peer Recovery Center of Excellence is funded by the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration, to enhance peer recovery support services by expanding access to training and technical assistance services across the country. The views expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the official policies of the Department of Health and Human Services, nor does mention of trade names, commercial practices, or organizations imply endorsement by the U.S. government. We hope you've had a wonderful recovery month, and we'll keep seeing you until next time. Talk with you next time.